Josh, can you introduce yourself, say your name, and tell us what you do? Yeah, so my name is Josh Monks. Uh, my internet handle is WarMonks. It comes from the card Rocks WarMonk. Uh, I've been playing Magic off and on since about, I'm going to say, Plane Shift. Uh, I really started playing seriously around Lorwyn Block. I got a couple years before I went to college, and while I was in college, I uh, took a pretty big break from the game. But now that I've been back for about a year and a half, I've been getting really back into Legacy, really into the Eternal community. And one of the big ways that I've been doing that is I've been casting weekly events at Card Kingdom in Seattle, Washington. We stream Legacy every Monday at 6.30 p.m., and it's it's my dream job, but I don't really know how feasible of a dream job it is right now. I'm hoping that changes in the future, but uh, even from just a couple of years ago, it's much more feasible than it was then. So I'm hoping a couple of years from now, it'll be even more feasible. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Each episode, I sit down with an inspiring person from the magic community. We hang out on their kitchen table to talk about Magic the Gathering as they share stories from the journey of their lives. This is episode 17. In this episode, I'm talking to Josh Monks, a local Seattle player with a passion for commentary and a wide range of knowledge about different decks in different formats. Josh shares with us about how he got into commentary and how that contributes to his learning of the game. Josh really cares about the game and the community, and commentates on Card Kingdom's weekly legacy stream. We also go over some great tips on how to improve. I hope you enjoy this episode with Josh Monks. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and today I am here with Josh Monks. Josh, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing today, Sam? I'm doing fantastic. I just wanted to start at the beginning. Tell us where you grew up and how you got started playing Magic. So uh, I'm a Seattle native, born and raised. I uh, was born here. I grew up here. I moved out of state for college for a couple of years. I moved to uh, Utah, which I did not like Utah. Uh-huh. I really liked the school I went to. And if I had to go back to school, I'd go there. But uh don't really plan on ever going to Utah again in my life. Uh-huh. So pretty much how that goes. I got a degree in computer science and then I knew that I wanted to live in Seattle. So I moved back here right away. Very cool. I uh, I started playing Magic. I don't even remember when. I think my brother had got the seventh edition pre-con and needed somebody to play the like pre-set out game. It like has uh, in the instructions, it like walks you through a game and has the decks already ordered. So you draw the right cards. Uh-huh. And uh, I think he just literally needed somebody to sit there and hold the cards and play the ones that the rule book says so he could learn how to play. Uh-huh. And I think that the rules have just kind of stuck with me since. Uh, back in high school, one of my friends asked, hey, are you going to Friday Night Magic tonight? And it's someone I hadn't really spoken to in a few years. Uh, we had gone to elementary school together, but hadn't seen each other since then much. And at the time, I didn't really play Magic, but he did. And I was like, oh, sure, why not? And uh, I'm pretty sure that I went to pretty much every single FNM there for probably the next two years, maybe three years mm-hmm. almost. Uh, and then when I left for college, there wasn't a very big Magic scene in Utah, so took some downtime there. But once I moved back to Seattle, where the scene is just so active and so lively, I immediately got back into the game. Very cool. You kind of don't remember exactly when you started started learning, but it was like maybe 7th edition, like some yeah, kind of pre stuff. Yeah, I want to say I remember looking at some cards from 7th edition and being like, oh, I remember this from a really long time ago, but I also remember seeing some cards from an Invasion and Plane Shift and being like, oh, I remember seeing these cards before I knew how to play the game. And I've even found some like Tempest and Weatherlight cards, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't really know where they came from. So mm-hmm. it's it's been such a long time that I don't even have a concrete like date of when I started playing Magic. It uh-huh. was just such a, an organic progression in my life, I feel. Yeah. When did you start going to F&M's? Uh, so the first time that I started going to FNM was in high school. I believe it was my sophomore year. It was just one Friday. A friend uh, asked me if I wanted to go play. 
And I said, sure, why not? I haven't played Magic in a couple of years, but uh, if you lend me a deck, I'd love to play. Was it constructed? Like yeah, standard? so it was constructed Legacy, actually. It was oh. a store called Diamond in the Mall, which is up in Lake Forest Park in North Seattle. So actually, I guess it's kind of in Shoreline, so a little bit further north than Seattle. Uh, they don't run events anymore, and I honestly don't know when they stopped running events, but I would go there for Legacy every single week, hang out with all my friends. Wow, that's pretty insane that you started playing FNMs with Legacy Constructed? Yeah, I remember, I uh, let's see, I remember when I bought my first deck, which was Ravager Affinity. I bought my Arcbound Ravagers for a dollar. I bought my Glimmer Voids for a dollar. I bought my Lotus Petals for 25 cents. And wow. I remember being like, wow, these magic cards are crazy expensive. Wow. Uh, then I remember buying my first set of Tarmogoyfs and thinking, wow, $20 for a play set of magic cards? That is way too much money. How can I possibly spending this much money on this game? And the only reason that the Tarmogoyfs were so cheap is because one of them had a planes written on the back of it. Oh my god! <laughs> it had been used as a proxy card, a playtest card, if you will. Uh, and planes written on the back, so he sold the set to me as slightly damaged. And uh, I think I sold it maybe six months later for $50 each. Uh, probably $50 total, but... Wow. Just the, the difference in the price ranges at that period were just so explosive. You know, I love that you started off saying that you played Legacy because you commentate on Card Kingdom's Monday Night Legacy. Yeah, I do it as often as I can. I, I love the format. It's so interesting and it's so diverse. It's, it's a format that can take so much knowledge just to get into. There's so many things going on in the format. I mean, you can just look at a card like Brainstorm and realize that, oh, draw three cards, put two back. I mean, just the number of different ways to physically play the card Brainstorm in one situation just starts reaching into like almost the hundreds of different possibilities. And if you add in what age should I cast this? Should I have a fetch land open? Should I fetch first? You start getting into all of these different ways to play this one card. And so the knowledge required to play this format on the same level as everybody else is just so much higher than it is in other formats. In formats that you don't have cantrips, you, you know, you curve out and you play your hand properly, but you don't have to think about the probabilities of what you're drawing into the deck anywhere near to the level that you have to do in Legacy. I was asking a lot of players who were much better than me, how do I get better at magic? I think this is a question that many players ask at some point in their lives. And a lot of people in the community said, go play Cube or go play Legacy. And so in November of 2015, when uh, Grand Prix SeaTac rolled around, the format was Legacy. And this entire town just kind of blew up in fervor. It was awesome. I loved it. I was so excited. Yeah, a lot of people were really excited. And so I built a burn deck and I borrowed Goblin Guides and Eidolon of the Great Revel because I didn't have them. And I cobbled together burn, played burn, didn't do great, went like 3-5 or something like that. Sounds about right. Sounds about right, yeah. I noticed a significant improvement in my play after scrubbing out of a legacy GP. I like learn how to, people were telling me you have to sequence things properly, make sure you, you look at what your opponent is doing. Just by getting beat down, I learned so much. Yeah, there's there's so many mistakes that you make in Legacy that are so immediately apparent. You're like, oh, well, I guess I'm never going to make this play again. It's it's so binary in terms of how incorrect most plays are in Legacy that it's very easy to kind of iterate and learn from that. Especially even in the burn deck, you have deck cards like Price of Progress and Fire Blast that it's pretty obvious that you need those spells to resolve. You can't have them get countered, so you run a Price Progress into a daze once, and all of a sudden you stop playing into dazes. And what's really interesting about the Price of Progress versus Days matchup is because Days bounces an island, you can bounce non-basics. And so you can get to situations where you you can play a Price of Progress with three or four open lands up and your opponent just dazes the Price of Progress multiple times to return all their dual lands back to their hand to effectively gain two life for each one. Mm -hmm. And uh, even subtle things like that, you start having to realize and play around in a format where there's just so many free spells. Interesting. I was terrified of Force of Will before I played Legacy because I was like, it's a free counter spell. Everything I'm going to do is getting going to get countered. But that wasn't really the thinking. If you're playing against a player who knows how to value your spells, there's some things that they're not going to counter. And so 
I got a lot of my opponents down to three or four or six or seven, and they had very nervous looks on their faces because you know they didn't know who I was. They didn't know I was a legacy scrub, and they were like, "This guy's playing burn." Who knows what's going to happen? And I did even win some games. Yeah, Force of Will is a, it's almost a last resort card. It's this card that looks so tempo oriented and so value disoriented that you'd expect it to be something you want to play in the first couple turns of the game. And you certainly do. There's a lot of must answer threats, things like uh, I'm going to name off Delver of Secrets, I'm going to name off Tarmogoyf. You can even have cards like Chase the Mind Sculptor or Counterbalance. And then there's even cards like uh, out of the Miracles or out of the Storm decks, you can have cards like Infernal Tutor and Lion's Eye Diamond that are just so high priority to counter. But Force of Will, it's a it's a resource loss. You you spend two cards to counter one. And in some matchups, especially Burn, you're also spending life totals. You're basically getting taxed in multiple ways by casting the spell just to maintain it parity. And so a lot of people actually start boarding out Force of Wills. The more intelligent players, when they know they're playing against other intelligent players and they have a very high level game going on, the card advantage loss of Force of Will is uh, pretty detrimental to winning the game. And so a lot of people start shaving numbers potentially on the player, the draw, depending on how they see it. Very fascinating. Whenever I speak to a high-level player, and I'm definitely referring to you, Josh, you are a high-level player, and we get on the topic of legacy. And so whenever we talk about it, I've, I was talking about it with you, Chris Furterer, as well as Jordan Isaka, as well as Brian Rowe. It just makes me want to play legacy so bad now. I have like this fire. I was like, oh my gosh, all of this sounds so fascinating. It's a really fun format. It's really cool to me how many different decks there are too. There's so many different strategies you can employ in legacy. And one of the big problems is most of the best strategies have been figured out. So there's not a whole lot of different ways to build each deck. You know, there's like one or two different tech cards you can play. But I mean, the difference between Rug Delver and Grixis Delver is not that significant. The difference between uh, Miracles and uh, other like Deathblade decks is still pretty similar, and the way you attack them is very similar. Josh, I wanted to ask you about how you got started doing commentary. So uh, I started doing commentary because uh, I had some friends, uh, they're kind of referred to as the old guard now. They don't necessarily play so much magic nowadays, but uh, when I was kind of growing up in my heyday, they were all the, the big spikes in the Seattle area. We were all playing at first pick games. This is like 2005 to 2010 era, and uh, you'd see people like Charles DuPont, John, John Laux, uh, Max McCall, a lot of these players that have been on the Pro Tour multiple times, M Martin Golden Kirst, MGK, uh, are players that I would just draft with on the regular at first pick games every Friday. And, you know, they'd smash me every single week, but uh, I could tell that I was getting so much better playing there than I had been playing at other stores that I kept going. Mm -hmm. And uh, after I took my break and went to college, I took my magic sabbatical, if you will, mm -hmm. and came back. A lot of them had stopped playing first pick games, had closed down. But uh, some of them are still active in the community, and uh, there was actually quite a few of them. The Shotgun Lotus group were doing a broadcast called the Vintage Super League, or sorry, Vintage Rotisserie Draft. Mm. Vintage Super League is next. Uh, Vintage Rotisserie Draft is a really interesting format. It's a rotisserie style, which means that uh, players are in an Excel sheet, and they're just basically, they're picking one card out of a pack that contains every single card in Magic, and then passing it to the next person, and then they're picking a card. So usually you see Black Lotus go first, and then Ancestor Recall, and then all of the Moxin, and then you start seeing things like Time Walk and Snapcaster Mage and Force of Will, Mana Drain, these incredibly powerful cards. But of course, they can only be picked once. And uh, the Vintage Rotisserie Draft uh, presented by Shotgun Lotus was basically providing commentary of the draft as well as the matches afterwards. And the prizes were, I believe, alcohol and then a really cool trophy. <laughs> and so a lot of players were pretty excited about it. We were getting a lot of viewers on Twitch. And through that, I had met uh, Randy Bueller, who I'm sure everyone listening to this broadcast knows or will know sooner or later. Mm -hmm. He's a pretty big name in the Magic community, especially on the commentary side. And uh, he wanted to come up with this idea for the show, The Vintage Super League. 
And uh, I had been doing all of the tech work for the Vintage Rotisserie drafts with Shotgun Lotus. And so Randy approached me and asked if uh, I wanted to work on the Vintage Super League. I, of course, what did and worked for as long as I could. Um, it, I was doing the broadcast for about a year and a half. And uh, in terms of technicality, it was a little bit outside of my scope. I was pretty fresh out of college and my streaming experience pretty much just came from streaming myself playing games personally, mm-hmm. not any professional broadcast, which is, you know, kind of the standard that we've come to see out of Magic's content. Right. But uh, while I was doing it, it was a blast and I really liked it. But uh, through that, I had constantly been talking to Card Kingdom, uh, really good friends there, both on the playing side and the employee side. And, you know, they're interested in doing commentary. I wanted to do commentary for events. Uh, Chris Cornejo, the tournament organizer at Card Kingdom, had all the equipment. He's like, "Hmm, let's just do it. Mm -hmm. And so we started streaming every week, and it's been a pretty big hit. We get about 250 to 300 viewers-ish. Yes. A little bit underneath that, but Mm -hmm. in that ballpark pretty much every single week, which Mm -hmm. is really exciting because there's not a ton of legacy content out there. That's right. I have to say that whenever I tune in on Mondays, I don't really know what's going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. But whatever you say, it builds up the context for where you are in that particular moment very quickly. That's an artful skill. It's a, it's like a science and an art kind of a fine balance. Yeah, thanks for the compliment. Uh, one of the big things that we were talking about when we were coming up with this content or coming up with the streaming and what we were in going going for in terms of viewer engagement is we wanted people that had been really engrossed in the format, know all the ins and outs. We wanted them to be able to watch it and feel comfortable. But also, we have to make sure that people that may not know what Brainstorm does are also going to be able to watch the show and be engaged. So one of the things that we talk about a lot is kind of the common strategies that a deck will employ. For example, with the Miracles deck, we'll often bring up the fact that, oh, he's got a Brainstorm in hand. He's got a Terminus in hand. He's going to be setting up by casting this Brainstorm, put Terminus on top of his library. Then later on, potentially during his opponent's next turn or somewhere down the line, he'll be able to flip his top. Miracle that Terminus and play that Sweet Bird instant speed. But what really matters is the fact that he may play Brainstorm three or four turns in advance, but it was a very specific time that he did that so that he was able to set up the sequence of turns in that way. And a newer player may not necessarily be able to understand the thought process into why he played Brainstorm specifically then, but they also wouldn't necessarily understand that Brainstorm could set up that Terminus. But... We also are trying to get these players engaged, so we'll, you know, bring up the more obvious fact, the one that is kind of the level one play, if you will, of the deck, and bring that to the spotlight so players can see the decks operate on that level. Mm-hmm. So we may not be going as deep as physically possible into the layers that the players are making, but we're still talking about stuff with substance. And there's a big movement right now going on in the Seattle area and possibly nationwide about preserving legacy. And so Card Kingdom has a legacy preservation series. It's a 1K tournament. Yeah, they're a, they're a blast. They happen once a month. Yeah, there's a one at Card Kingdom in one month, and then next month will be Mox Sporting House, their sister store in Bellevue. And then next month, it'll swap back to Card Kingdom back and forth every month like that, which is pretty interesting. So you get once one a month, but one every two months at each store. And you don't get to play in those necessarily because you're commentating. Well, uh, Mox Sporting House is working on setting up their streaming capabilities. They don't have it up quite yet. Um, so whenever we're there, I'll get to play in them. And uh, the ones at Card Kingdom, it's pretty inconsistent. I really like casting, so I try and do what as much as I can to cast. But uh, commentary is really fun, uh, but it doesn't necessarily beat playing Magic. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's something I certainly like as much as, if not more than playing Magic, but uh, it's not something that I want to do every single week. I'm still an avid Magic player, so I still <laughs> I still got that, uh, that itch to scratch. Tell us about what formats you play. So I uh, I started started out playing Legacy, so I'm much more of an internal focused player than anything else. Uh, as I was in my pre-college era in the 2005 to 2010 era, I was really active in the Legacy and Extended community. I was going to as many PTQs back then, and those were the big PTQs back before they were PPTQs, which mm-hmm. was a really fun way to just meet the players in the scene. And uh, it honestly made me so much better at playing Magic, I think, just because you're around these players that their skill level is so much higher and there's so much more stakes on the line. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of pick it up so much faster 
in terms of I need to be this good to compete at this level, you you see where that bar is so much earlier on. Mm-hmm. And I think that led to me having a really solid foundational understanding of magic that has now led to my skills in commentary. Josh, where do you get such a breadth and depth of knowledge in terms of formats when you do commentary? Uh, so I've just been playing magic for a really long time. I uh, really like the game. I really like hanging out with friends and I really like playtesting. So it's pretty easy for me to play more magic. It's pretty hard for me to play less magic is the way I always look at it. And uh, what that means is I get a ton of experience playing uh, all the different formats because I just play so much. And also, I think another thing that's really helped me learn all of the different formats is that I don't really own cards. Mm-hmm. I almost exclusively borrow cards from people. I borrow decks from people most mm-hmm. of the time. The legacy community in Seattle is just so nice and so laid back that pretty much anyone's willing to lend me a deck. We've even had vintage FNMs, and I've been lent different vintage decks for different events. I've oh played three or four different vintage decks and sanctioned vintage tournaments. And just having opportunities like that has really been able to let me view every single matchup from both sides. Because you can learn how to play, you know, the Storm vs. Miracles matchup by playing it 30, 35 times in a row. But playing both sides of that matchup 15, 20 times maybe is going to be so much more helpful learning how those decks interact because you get to see every interaction from both sides of the table. And a lot of the skills in Magic is coming from being able to take subjective information and make objective decisions. And I think being able to see both sides of a matchup really helps you get that type of analysis. That's really interesting that you say that you've borrowed lots of decks And borrowing those decks is what allows you to play all these different matchups. What happens if you borrow a deck that isn't particularly your play style? Um, I don't really think I have a play style. Mm -hmm. I I can tell that I'm not a hardcore combo player. I tend to shy away from the drastically unfair strategies. Besides that, I'm pretty much open for whatever. I mean, even in Legacy, I'm pretty comfortable with Miracles. I'm quite comfortable with Delver. I'm really comfortable with uh, all of the Vile decks. I'm pretty comfortable with Storm, not not as comfortable with the rest of them, but it's still a deck that I can play, even though it's not necessarily my play style. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I think that after a while, you start getting into a mindset. Uh, I think that this happens just being a spike in general. You stop saying, I want to play the fun strategy. I want to play my favorite deck. And you start saying, what's the best deck? I'm going to start playing that. Normally in... Um, a lot of formats, I think that's very easy to do. It's very easy to kind of determine what the best deck is. But I think in Legacy, just comfort with your deck is so much more important. So being able to say, these are the good decks, and then be able to play all of them is really, really important. Because then you're also going to be very good at playing against them. Interesting. I like that attitude that you have in that you're willing to play every deck to learn about it. And that deepens your understanding and also in, in respect and enjoyment of the game. Absolutely. I think what it's also led me to do is be able to determine kind of how to play magic cards in general, if that makes sense. Because uh, a lot of decks, you know, uh, this is a lot more obvious in combo matchups, uh, combo decks specifically, but they're very linear strategies. They have uh, specifically one plan on how to win the game and just go down that path as fast as possible. Um, and what you what you start losing learning is that these cards that are mainly used for one resource, like, uh, for example, Infernal Tutor is usually used to go get either Pass and Flames or uh, Tendrils of Agony in conjunction with Lion's Eye Diamonds. You can get the mana for free and then cast stuff. Um, but there's a lot of times where you'll use Infernal Tutor just to get a Dark Ritual, or sometimes you'll get an Abrupt Decay or a Brainstorm just because you'll have to use that resource. Mm-hmm. And so what you start learning is that even though cards are built to do one thing, knowing how to use them properly, which may not be their recommended usage, is, is a skill that you have to pick up, and there's no right or wrong way to do it. So the way you figure it out is you make the right play and you make the wrong play over and over again. And mm-hmm. if you don't know which one's which, then you just keep trying until you figure out which one works best. That is so fascinating. The more and more we talk, you know, I'm trying to build up like this profile of you as a player, as a magic player in the magic community. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm quite surprised to hear from you that you don't own any cards and then you just borrow all your friends' decks and you just go and you play. 
Yeah. And you just learn. And, you know, that's so interesting to me. Yeah, I uh, what I've started to do since I've been doing commentary is uh, I actually imagine what casters would be talking about while I'm playing my match, mm-hmm. which I think has actually made me significantly better mm-hmm. just because I'm able to say like, oh, okay, if I was watching this and this guy was deciding between playing maybe Swords to Plowshares or if he was porting, you know, I could say, what are the casters going to talk about? Like, what what are the threats that I need to play around that the casters say, oh, his opponent has this in his hand. He's going to want to save the Swords to Plowshares to kill this threat later. You can almost start analyzing the game in that regard. And you start almost automatically thinking about what you have to play around just because you're so used to seeing these matchups play out while you're sitting up above in the crow's eye view watching the Blair's play. That's really cool. What caster do you channel when you think that way? So uh, I guess this is a pretty complicated question. My favorite caster is uh, this guy called Rivington III. He's a League of Legends commentator. Uh-huh. And he's one of the coolest guys, in my opinion. I've even played League of Legends with him once. I also play a lot of League of Legends. But uh, in terms of like who I'm hoping to channel, I always view the booth whenever um, I'm watching some of the higher level streams, uh, like for example, Star City Games or Wizards of the Coast, they usually have one guy who's kind of the play-by-play and he's kind of announcing what the players are doing. And you can see this really obviously in the Star City Games stream. You have Cedric Phillips, who's basically talking about basketball, but using magic card words instead of basketball words. Mm -hmm. And he's really analyzing the play-by-play while he's handing all of the uh, color commentary and more of the higher level thought off to the other caster. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really important dynamic in the booth, even though it's not necessarily these people that I'm trying to channel, it's these roles that I'm trying to channel. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to say that what gives a nice balance to the booth is having one guy who's kind of there. He's kind of the adult of the booth, if you will, talking about like, okay, here's the schedule. Here's all the steps that all the players are going to be doing. And then the other guy is just kind of off in his own world talking about nonsense. And like the nonsense is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And so whenever there's a lot of downtime, like between decks or between matches, between games where people are shuffling their decks, mm-hmm. it's really important that you have this kind of uh, color commentary talking about some stories, maybe from a previous event or one of their interactions with the players. But then also right when the matchup starts that they hand it right back off and that play by play announcer is then talking about each of the plays as they go on. Mm -hmm. And so being able to find that fluidity and that smoothness and a valley between the two is, I think, a very important skill and what I'm trying to work on the most. Which role are you taking up right now? So I'm, I tend to be one of the most experienced casters when I'm in the booth with whoever I'm casting with. And so what I try and do is, uh, I try and let them be comfortable. Usually what I say is I'm going to be the host, which means I'm going to be managing the stream. And then they're going to be the talent. They're going to be the expert that we brought into the booth to explain why these magic players are doing what they're doing. And that naturally leads itself very, very well to have me being the play-by-play and them being the color. But that doesn't always happen. And I'm pretty fluid. So I am basically going to fill whatever role they're not going to fill. Mm-hmm. And I have had a couple situations where I've had to do both. And it wasn't a big deal because, you know, I'm not casting with people who I expect to be professional commentators or even anywhere close to my competency or skill level or understanding of commentary. Mm-hmm. So I'm absolutely prepared to handle that. But uh, I don't think that I necessarily lock myself into one and say, this is what I'm doing. And then the other guy better do his job because this is my job and that's his job. It's very much about, I'm trying to have a good time in the booth. I'm trying to have a conversation with this guy while we talk about magic. And I think that leads to a much more endearing and interesting commentary booth mm-hmm. as well as commentary pair. Yeah. I think you touched on some great thoughts about the theory crafting in creating content. Because <laughs> when you're commentating and you're casting you are hosting a show. You're hosting a live show. Yeah, I'm, I want people's attention to be on me. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking about what I'm saying before I say it. Many years ago in Esquire magazine, there was a journalist, a writer, who somehow got a gig calling a horse race. He was just writing about how stressed out he was, practicing for two minutes, and he has to know all the horses' names, and he has to be speaking constantly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very funny. He did it with mixed results, but still very eye-opening and very funny. And that particular article in Esquire has always stuck with me whenever I think about commentary, live shows, when I'm watching basketball, football, anything like that, watching Twitch streams and things. There's a lot of feedback in the community about 
how commentary is going with, with Wizards. And you've seen them very recently make a lot of changes, mm-hmm. right? Like in the stream chat, people are quite rude to some of the other commentators. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've seen a lot of nasty things being said about people. They recently brought on Gabby Sparts. Mm-hmm. I love Gabby and I love LSV. I think that commentary pair is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best commentary pairs I've ever seen out of any sport, I think. You know, of course, there's always been Marshall Sutcliffe, mm-hmm. and uh, they trade out Jackie Lee for a little bit, and then they've also tried out some other people for a little bit. Like, of course, with Star City Games, now that you've broken it down that way with Cedric Phillips, um, I've seen Cedric with Matthias Hunt or like Patrick Sullivan, mm-hmm. and then they absolutely have that dynamic. What would it look like moving forward to build that kind of a duo or a pair for like a card kingdom? It's something that I'm really interested in doing. Uh, it, it can be tough just because these are these obviously aren't full-time jobs. These are just free-time jobs. So I can't really expect anyone to commit time. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you say I'm going to be here for this day on commentary, I expect you to be there. But I also am not going to be firing you or anything like that mm-hmm. if you don't show up. You know, if you tell me, hey, you know, I actually can't make it tonight. Can you find someone else? I'm going to be able to do that. But what that also means is that I can't really set up a schedule and be like, okay, we've got the team in the booth today. We've got the team in the booth for the next three weeks running. It's me and XYZ. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't really do that because I can't really expect anyone to, else to invest every single week mm-hmm. or set up a schedule where they're casting every single week with me. Uh, maybe in the future, that's more of a possibility. If the stream kind of takes off and becomes something that maybe has some financial compensation, we can start asking for a little bit more demands. But at the time is pretty much if we get casters, we get casters. I think that will also take off more if Card Kingdom starts to stream draft standard, mm-hmm. modern, there's going to be much more content out there on the schedule for each day of the week. Absolutely. It, it can be tough to get casters, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, the legacy community is, we're a really close-knit group. We're all really good friends with each other. So we all have a lot of very good dynamics and a lot of good back and forth. We've also been playing Magic Legacy specifically for such a long time that we really understand the nuance and the ins and outs of the format and can talk about them eloquently and quickly enough to have it be a stream. But I don't know if Card Kingdom has the has the players in other formats necessarily to do that because I know a lot of legacy players are like exclusively legacy players. They hate mm-hmm. every other format mm-hmm. and they won't touch other formats. Mm-hmm. So it can be tough. Do you have any candidates in mind that you think are out in the community that would make good modern limited standard casters with you? Um, you know, I haven't seriously considered it. I uh I really want to be making it to more events at Card Kingdom mm-hmm. because that's where it would be. And I their modern events are like Sundays at eleven AM, which is like pretty hard for me to make uh-huh. so it, it's hard for me to make it out there which i think i would need to do to really be like you know this is someone i'd be comfortable in the booth with mm-hmm. because it's, it's got to be the right situation but and the dynamic has to be there but i also have to be going to the events well enough to be able to tell from a crowd who that is yeah got it i think when you have a community of fans the fans are always just hungry for more and more and more content absolutely and, um, casting and commentary the good commentary is a great way to go the, the way that i always look at it is I personally like when I'm having insomnia or whatever and I wake up early in the morning or if I don't have any plans for the day and I'm sitting around, I really like to be watching something on Twitch or YouTube while I'm doing whatever I'm doing, if I'm playing a game or if I'm maybe writing some, if I'm doing some work or if I'm reading a book even. I, I kind of like the background noise. And so I like creating my broadcast with the idea that even though you're watching it live right now, somebody is also going to be watching this six months from now while it's 2 a.m. and they don't want to care anything about like the temporary stuff on the stream. They're just there for the match and for the commentary. And so I think it's really important that your stream is both engaging to active players, so you're responding to chat, but you're also kind of ignoring the parts of chat that aren't necessarily as relevant to the stream overall. Like people are like, oh, hey, how are you doing? Welcome to the stream. Like someone six months from now doesn't really care that Top Gunshot or 
Dark Lotus. I, I don't know some other. What are some er- other terrible Twitch names that I could come up with off the top <laughs> of my bed? They don't really care that these random players are hopping into the stream. So I, I tend not to like greeting players when they come to the stream. But uh, you know, they're, I'm happy that they're there. But uh, I also don't want to detract from someone in the future who's watching the stream. That's very clever. I'm wondering if Wizards of the Coast would ever accept some kind of a pitch like Food Network does with like the next Food Network star and doing some kind of a contest about commentary. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting and I would certainly jump at the opportunity to, the opportunity to prove myself, but uh, I don't really know if that's how it works. I think it's uh, a little bit more you've got to talk to the right people and you got to talk well enough in advance that you're able to get scheduled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my goal is to do some professional commentary, but it's, uh, it's hard, so... Mm-hmm. I've always been interested in orthogonal thinking. Do you know that term? Mm -hmm. I do, yes. It's actually one of my favorite words. Yes, and for our listeners, orthogonal thinking is when you take two seemingly unrelated concepts and you try to find similarities in them. And it's a great way to change the context on things, get a new perspective on things. And um, the Seahawks in the last couple of years have done really well. And so as I think as an entire city, we've been watching a lot of football. And I've always been thinking about like, you know, football commentary is there. It's very matured and it's very well-developed. It's highly produced. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how magic commentary can relate to that. And so I've always been thinking, obviously, the casters commenta- commentating on the football game know basically everything that's about to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And fans sometimes don't. And casters oftentimes know everything that's about to happen, possibly. They, they see all the lines. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that there needs to be a baseline level of skill to be able to commentate because you're kind of like playing out this magic game in your head and you're competent enough to comment on it. Yeah, you need to be able to see what all the lines are and be able to tell just by glancing what the correct one is. And maybe it's not necessarily about finding the one correct line, but saying here are the three possible lines that I think are the right plays, but let's see what the player does. Maybe he takes one of these three, maybe he finds another line that I don't see, but it's important to be prepared for any of those outcomes. So if he takes an inferior line that you had said, this is a lot, this is a bad line, and then he plays it, you might say, oh, you know, this is a bad line. I don't really like this line because he's going to lose this resource in this way. Like maybe it's he plays a snapcaster mage and then with the intention of blowing up, uh, sweeping the board on the following turn, he like loses the snapcaster that way in a situation. And I, I think that if players make the incorrect line, you need to be able to talk about why it's the incorrect line without being able, without saying this player's bad. He made the wrong play. He's dumb. Let's just call him bad. Because I think if you do that, it's really demoralizing for the players because later on they'll watch the VODs and see you talking bad about them while they're making, you know, their honest best best attempts. And I also think that you detract a lot from the interactions in the booth because it I, I like to think about it whenever I'm in the booth is that it's me and another friend and we're just talking about magic while there's also a magic match going on. So obviously we're going to talk about the magic match when we need to, but we can also draw it back and just have the conversation we're having in general. But uh, if you start focusing on the negative side of the players, the players get a little disenfranchised and you it stops being so much like two friends in a booth and two guys heckling in a booth, which is mm-hmm. not as interesting to watch. The dynamic yeah. just isn't really the same. And this whole time we've been talking about casting and commentary from a booth perspective, mm-hmm. but also as a player to see yourself being commentated on, I think that's also incredibly helpful to learn plays because you get to see what you did and per- perhaps in the moment you you weren't that aware because you were deep in thought, but to be able to step out, kind of have an out-of-body experience, see yourself, and then also hear the commentary, that's very good. That's like play test level, team level stuff to be able to get oh, yeah. access to. 
I uh, every time I'm not in the booth, I try my best to be feature matches because I feel like I can improve the most when I see myself making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And then I also have like concrete examples of all the decisions I made rather than me being like, okay, well, I think on turn three, I did this. And on turn four, I did this. And turn five, on de- I did mm-hmm. this. Whereas when you're watching the VOD, you're like, I did this, I did this, I did this. Th- these are what happened. Here's the proof. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to like trust your faulty memory to make sure you had the exact way that game played out off the top of your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the thing that took me the longest to get used to, though, was uh, hearing myself when I was watching the VODs of myself doing commentary. Mm-hmm. I uh, I spent a lot of time trying to iterate and improve on my commentary skills. And one of the ways that I've done that is uh, I watch the VODs. I think about what, I've, what I did say, and I think about how I could have phrased it differently, maybe even saying the exact same thing, maybe a different term for what I used. Or I could have taken a pause maybe at a different point in the sentence. And I've come to realize that the pacing of the sentences that you say in the booth are incredibly important. You can draw people into what you're saying, really make them focus. If you take these big pauses in your sentences, like I'm like I'm doing right now, and sometimes you have to you have to repeat some words for emphasis. It really draws the viewers in to really make them listen to what you're saying, which I think is really fun because I can analyze it afterwards. I can watch the VOD and say, okay, well, maybe if I had paused on this word instead of this word, it would have been more or less interesting. And I think that has helped me get so much more impressive and talented in the booth. And I think that skill is starting to become more and more apparent as more commentary comes out as I've had more, as I get more and more experience and more VODs out there. There's a rule in competitive REL that you can't have electronic devices during the match. Mm -hmm. I wonder what it would be like if I just strapped a GoPro to my head and was able to (laughs) watch that playback footage. Yeah, I uh, I don't know what Wizards of the Coast would say. I feel like they would probably say, we would really appreciate it if you didn't do this. It's definitely treading into some sketchy territory, especially if you, like, I don't know, cut a hide an earpiece in your ear or something like that. Because then all of a sudden it's so easy for someone to be feeding you outside information. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's also like a really, it would be a really cool tool to have to improve. Mm-hmm. So maybe some caster or some judges would be willing to make exceptions for that. And also probably not all of your opponents would appreciate you videotaping them. Yeah, I could definitely see that, especially because the majority of it is going to be either looking at your hand or looking at them. So Mm -hmm. you'll have a lot of their face on that video. (laughs) That's right. The first time I ever saw myself on someone else's stream, I played one game of a final round at Geek Fortress. It was like modern. And I was playing Grixis, uh, the Michael Majors list. And I think I was playing against scapeshift i want to say and it went to game three so it was pretty exciting and we both had really strange records i think i had like two draws that night which was like unheard of and um i was really excited that i was going to be on the stream and then i went home and like watched it and i learned so much about that Mm -hmm. and i always thought that i played really slow but then i saw myself on camera and i was like wow i play really fast and then i thought that i was making the wrong move but the commentators in the booth were like yeah, I know he's about to do this. And then I would do it. And then I was like, oh, I hope he does this. And I did that. And I was like, oh, okay. I feel a lot better about that now. Yeah. yeah. The way I always think about that is I imagine that it's like when you're watching a performance or you're watching like an obedience class, maybe is a slightly smaller example, but like if there's a lion tamer and he's like, okay, now I'm going to have the lion sit down. And then he says sit and then the lion sits. I think it's a lot very much like that. Like the casters will say, this is the best play. He's going to do this. And then the player either does it or doesn't. And then you're like, good dog or bad dog. Uh huh. <laughs> That's really funny. This is such an interesting turn of events in our conversation. Um, Usually magic players always talk about strategy, learning, practice, playtest, repetition, having a a team, having knowledge of the meta, Mm -hmm. um, having the cards, playing the best deck, um, analyzing what choices that we can make. But we're breaking down this fourth wall and we're saying casting, streaming, commentary, watching ourselves through this lens, this whole new perspective. 
helps players improve. I think so. I think that if anything, it makes you woke AF. That's what I'm going to go with. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, just being able to analyze yourself from this perspective is a. Uh, trying to remember the name of it. There's a a pyramid for like the uh, what level of thought you're on, mm-hmm. and uh, like the lowest levels is like very basic human necessities, um, like you know making sure you have food and water. Is it Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Th- yeah. Yeah, that's the okay. one. That's the one. Uh, I'm glad you got there because I know I didn't describe it very well, but I'm glad <laughs> you got there. But like the highest one on that is capture. Is that correct? Uh-huh. Which is when you're taking information, you're you're using that information to learn more. Mm-hmm. So you're basically at this point, you're kind of almost at a meta knowledge point where you're taking the knowledge that you're learning and using and using that to improve your knowledge in other areas. Mm-hmm. And I think that that being able to form these connections and these synapses is really, really important to improving as a player because back to how I think is magic is very much about um, having subjective information and coming up with objective decisions. And uh, I think that that's, I think having a strong ability to capture, retain and connect knowledge leads you to making objective decisions with subjective information very, very effectively. And so what advice do you have for players trying to improve? Um, I think if you want to improve, really ask yourself why you want to improve, because a lot of people say they want to play the best deck, but then They'll play against someone and then they'll lose and they'll be like, oh man, that was so unfun or oh, that was so unfair. I can't believe you did that. And I think you have to ignore thoughts like that and be like, what could I have done differently? What did I do wrong? Approach every single loss and all of your wins as well as a learning tool, as something that you have evidence of and there were mistakes in that evidence. And now you can go through like a detective and find out what the wrong line was and what the correct line was. And once you start kind of almost doing this organically on a natural level, where you're like sitting there and you're like, okay, well, I could play this tap land on turn one and then play a two drop on turn two, or I could play a one drop on one on turn one and then a tap land on turn two. You, you can start analyzing how these different lines play out and kind of where they converge in terms of when they're the best play, when they're the worst play. And I think that's a skill that's so important to pick up. And there's no way anyone can kind of just walk you down that. There's not one simple secret. You know what I mean? It's not a clickbaity article. It's, it's hard and it takes a lot of thinking, but it's, it's how to get better. And what advice would you give to new players just starting off? Um, I I think that if you're just getting into Magic, uh, figure out what makes you happy about playing Magic. Figure out what it is that you like about playing Magic and improve on that. If you really like playing big games of EDH with your friends, keep doing that because that's what makes you happy and you, you should keep doing what makes you happy. If you have fun winning, figure out how to win more. If you have fun playing unique decks and then occasionally doing very, very well with them. Uh, I know you mentioned you had Travis Wu on the, in the booth earlier. And I think that he's got a really good thought process on the game. It's that he wanted to, I believe he wanted to top eight a pro tour at GP with his own deck. And I think that's like a really cool goal to have. And he has all of the right ways of approaching the game to be able to get to that goal. And then he did. And I think it was so obvious that he deserved every single win that his living end deck got. And eventually the ban and extended. <laughs> Josh, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Bring it. Okay, awesome. Rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, green, and red, what is your favorite color and why? So I'm going to go with blue, but uh, whenever I describe what my favorite color is, I have to go with color pair. I, I'm an is it through and through. I, okay. uh, Counterburn is my favorite cube deck to draft. I Something I really, really like about attacking with a goblin guide and then dazing a spell. It's just the, the combination there is something I love to do. Ooh. And so I'm very much about the tempo side of blue and the aggressive side of red. 
When I first started playing Magic, blue-red was my favorite color combination because I learned about the color pie and I was playing a lot of mono-colored decks back then. And then I just thought to myself, what if I play two colors? And then I thought, what were, what about the two colors that were so opposing to each other? Because mm-hmm. I played a lot of like super old-fashioned, like uh, you know, like Paul Sly-style burn decks. Mm-hmm. And then I also played a lot of really bad counter everything counter spell straight blue decks Mm -hmm. with like great whale and crap like that things that fly and you know degenerate stuff and then one day i went on the internet and i was trying to look for something where it combined those two things and i think i saw a a deck called the sparkler deck or something like that sparkler that sounds blue red yeah it sounds like blue red and and i just never really played it with um it just never was very successful like i didn't understand it i didn't know what to do like my mana base was terrible there were no fetch lands it was just like it was like 10 mountains and 10 islands. It was really bad. And then at some point, I tried to make a combo deck that was like blue-green. I liked green from the standpoint of like ramping out a bunch of elves. And so I played like query and elves. When it comes into play, you name a color and it gives you green and it gives you that color. Mm-hmm. So I named blue. And then also back in, I think, Apocalypse, that set, there was Urborg Elf, which is like, you can tap it for green, blue, or black. So oh, it was right, like the right. ultimate Sultai Elf. And then so I played that and then I played oppression and Mm -hmm. static orb okay i like where this deck is going it got a lot more degenerate very quickly and then i would tap the elves with opposition in play to tap down a permanent and uh static orb would not allow them to untap more than two of them and then during my upkeep i would tap static orb and the errata on it was that if static orb is untapped yeah it was a continuous artifact exactly and so i'd tap it right at the end of my turn and or before the beginning of my turn and i get to untap everything and so, including it. Including it, right. And so it turned out to be kind of like this like prison simic elf ball lock thing. And I splashed blue in it just like, because my, my knowledge of magic was so weak back then. I just said, I need to protect my combo. I need counter spells. So that's like all I do. But eventually I put high tide in there in Palancron. And so that allowed me to like... That's a different combo deck. <laughs> yeah. So I just jammed everything in there. And I played with uh, one of my friends and he was just like so annoyed because he was like, this is so stupid. I can't beat this. And I like never know what's going on with you in this deck. Um, and so we came up with a name for it. We called it Gulliver's Travels because it was like you get there and then like the little people lock you down. <laughs> <laughs> They'll tie you down. Okay. They'll tie right. you down. I see and, where this is going. You know, so we call it the Gulliver's Travels. So I've always wanted to like brew that deck back up again. Yeah. When you mentioned like two color combinations, I was just like, I love that. Because I think that uh, the the question, what's your favorite color in magic is pretty subjective. Like there's a lot of times where black is my favorite color or blue is my favorite color. It really depends what I'm trying to do. But but I think that asking not only what's your favorite color, but what what's your favorite combination of any number of colors, because I think that'll lead to a much more clear decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people might say one of the shards. They might say one of the wedges. They might say one of the clans. They might say one of the invasion dragons. They mm. might say one of the Nephilim. You never mm. know. One of the Ravnica Nephilim that's four colors. Hmm. Um, they might even say five color, which is, I think that's kind of a cop out. But <laughs> <laughs> they can do it if they want to. <laughs> that's too funny. Okay. Josh, question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Man, that's a tough question. That's a, that's a big one. Um, I think that Magic Online is uh, not where it needs to be mm-hmm. to compete with the other esports out there. And I feel like if, if Magic just looked a little sexier, I think that's what the problem is. If it just was a little bit more attractive to see, because uh, the Magic Online client is not the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if that was improved, I think that would go a long way to pushing Magic into the public eye. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pokemon did it. Yeah. I mean, Pokemon has lots of Pokemon and they all do different things. I don't know why we can't have like animations on all the cards. Mm-hmm. So yeah, even something like that, or just like if you compare Hearthstone to Magic Online, it's mm-hmm. just like night and day. And obviously Magic is a much more complex game. 
but and I'm obviously not the guy that's prepared to say what all the problems with Magic Online what to fix them are, but uh, I feel like that's that's really where the focus needs to be. Josh, number three, if you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? Um, that's that's also a tough question. These are not really what I would consider rapid fire questions. These are like deep philosophical questions. They're definitely rapid fire questions, and I ask you rapid fire, but they're not. They don't need to be rapid fire answers. Yeah, let's see. If I could give every Magic player one thing, um, I would hope that it's the motivation to improve. Mm-hmm. I think that that is such an important skill, but it's it's also not something that you can give to something. It's something they have to find. You can explain to them over and over again, but until they start learning how to capture and apply that knowledge, it's not something that can be given. It's something that has to be taken and found by themselves. They have to go out and cut it out of the undergrowth, if you will. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You have to want to improve. Josh, number four, what do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? Um, so what I see is pretty much what I see in every other esport. I feel like Magic has the growth capacity to match every other game's online presence, like League of Legends and Hearthstone, and now Overwatch are just juggernauts in terms of uh, how many viewers they get on Twitch. And I feel like Magic is a game that easily is way more fun than all of these other games. But again, the problem that I had before is that it's the appeal of the Magic Online client that I think is drawing away a lot of people, because there's not a good way to stream Magic. Paper Magic is the best, and it's like kind of intensive to set that up, and it's kind of intensive to set those up. It's kind of intensive to make sure you have all the players and the resources required to create these broadcasts. And you can't just go, I'm going to go play Magic versus some some random friends at a store. Like, that doesn't really work. It's got to be a tournament. Whereas with Magic Online, people could be like, I'm just going to be hopping in two, two-man queues all day, but they're using Magic Online, so it's like a lot less appealing to a viewer than it would be if it was Paper Magic. And so Paper Magic is definitely more appealing than online. I believe so. I, I think point. that like if LSV is going to stream, he's obviously going to get way more viewers than mm-hmm. people streaming Paper Magic. But I think that if Random Stranger number one was streaming Magic Online and Random Stranger number two was streaming a Paper Tournament, Paper Tournament would get more viewers. Mm-hmm. Josh, do you have any asks or requests of the audience? Like where can they find you on social media? Yeah, so if you're interested in seeing some legacy content, uh, twitch.tv slash Card Kingdom is where our VODs are located and where we stream live. We uh, stream every Monday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time, as well as most Saturday events, which are sometimes legacy, sometimes modern. We've had some standards, some popper. Uh, we've even had vintage tournament here and there. So uh, if you're interested in that, that is twitch.tv slash Card Kingdom is the Twitch page. And then a lot of the VODs are up on... Card Kingdom's YouTube page, which is youtube.com slash house. Not the same. Be careful. It's Mox Boarding House for the YouTube page. Uh, we're hoping on getting a page set up where we can put all of the VODs on there because uh, Card Kingdom does other videos that are not legacy content related, legacy commentary related. So they don't necessarily want their playlist, you know, absolutely full of weekly commentary videos. So mm-hmm. we're trying to find a more permanent place for that. I also have a Facebook page. I don't go on there very much. I think <laughs> it's Warmonks Lol because I built it when I was playing League of Legends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, War Monks is my personal Facebook page, mm-hmm. which is not a celebrity, so you can't like it. I just, I'm <laughs> a person on that one. <laughs> Are you on Twitter? Uh, you know, I keep trying to be on Twitter, but I just never have anything interesting to say. So I always don't say anything. I'm always like, who actually wants to hear about this? Like, what, what am I saying to these people? I feel like I'm yelling into a room that everyone <laughs> like is listening to because they have to, not because they want to be there and hear me. So I tend to stay off Twitter just because I feel weird about posting anything on Twitter. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's fine. That's fair. We'll have links to all of these in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Josh, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a blast.
That's it for my conversation with Josh. Watch him provide commentary on Card Kingdom stream at twitch.tv slash card kingdom. Also, since this recording, Mox Boarding House has gotten their stream up and running, so now there's double the opportunity to see Josh talk about Legacy or Modern. All of the links will be in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. There are only five episodes left in this season, and I'm now preparing for season two. It'll be released starting next year, January 2017. Thanks to everyone that has written in and commented in various ways to provide your thoughts and feedback on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic... When I first started streaming, I was just thinking, you know, it'd be fun to play more video games. So, you know, I could enjoy it, get a little bit better at video games, whatever. So I played most of Overlord, which is this really awesome game where you're this evil overlord and you like screw people over. It's fantastic. So I played that and I played like some Minesweeper and stuff just because I was playing, so I might as well stream. And some troll came into my ch- into my chat because I would have maybe two people watching me. And he's like, why don't you play a real game? Because I was playing Minesweeper. I mean, it's a puzzle you play when you're bored or something at work. I was like, well, I have Magic Online. And he says, well, that would at least be better. And I know that they were just trolling me now. At that point, I hopped on to play Magic Online on stream for the first time. So from there, I ended up with like eight people watching me. It was insane. There were so many people watching me play Magic. I mean, it felt like a ton of people. And like, I actually had a conversation going in chat. And I mean, it was it was crazy. So I tried it again and it worked again. It just kind of kept going and more people started to notice me. And so I would keep streaming magic because I liked, you know, interacting with people. And then now I am a big streamer with like hundreds of people watching me each day. And it's really kind of cool. I'm speaking with Jennifer Long, better known as Mrs. Mulligan. Jennifer is a popular streamer on Twitch and plays a variety of formats. She has a great attitude and approaches improvement and learning within the game of Magic in an empowering and refreshing way. I had a really fun conversation with Jennifer. I hope you join us both all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.